says your respective families. Um, Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 26. I did also forget to dismiss our children, and Adriana's probably waiting back there saying, what is going on, Mr. Cross? Okay. Well, we we watched a, a video this morning in Promise Keepers, Peacekeepers, Peacemakers. I'll get it right. Never mind. I'm going to just stop while I'm behind. <laughs> Acts chapter 26. We're going to read the first 11 verses. Acts chapter 26. Let's pray before we read God's word. Father, this is your word. God, this just isn't a history story of kings and governors. But God, this is an elected servant of yours whom you called to take the gospel to the world. Lord, there's much that we can learn from his pattern. There's much we can learn by his example. Father, I pray that you would open the eyes of our understanding today. Lord, I pray that we would make right application from your word. I ask the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts. God, you know everyone that's here today. You search the hearts. You try the minds. God, if there is someone who knows about Jesus but has never personally acknowledged that they were a sinner and they need a Savior. God, I ask today that You, through the power of Your Word, through the power of the Holy Spirit, would illuminate them and convince them of the necessity of personally receiving Christ into their life. God, For believers this morning, help us to be able to defend, to articulate, and graciously share our faith in Jesus Christ as a resurrected Savior. That He is not just God the Son, but He is eternally God the Father as well that He is the Prince of Peace, that He is the Wonderful Counselor, that He is the Mighty God. Father, I pray for us as a church that our testimony would be effective, that our witness would be powerful in North Ogden, in Ogden where we live, and the people that we work with, the people that we interact with every single day, God, that we would be conscious of their soul's lost estate if they are not followers of You. That, God, we would begin even praying now that You would lay someone on our heart that we would begin to intercede for. That, God, that You would open the doors of the Word of God. That we might have our speech seasoned with salt. That we would know how we would answer everyone who has a question for the hope that's in us with meekness, and with godly reverence. So God, open our hearts. Even as we read this, begin even now to teach us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Acts chapter 26, verses 1-11. through Then Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. My first point in our outline this morning is the heart, the heart of an apologist. And I want you just to see the heart of Paul in these introductory statements that he makes when he's on trial before Agrippa and before Festus. He stretched out his hand and he answered for himself and he said, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today 
I shall answer for myself. Notice his heart. He starts out with a gracious attitude, a gracious way of entering into this trial where he is being accused of violating Roman law. He's being accused of stirring up riots, of contradicting the law of Moses. And he doesn't come out with an attitude of contention. He doesn't come out striving. He doesn't come out quarreling, arguing. He comes out with a meek and gentle spirit. The heart of the apologist is very, very important. This morning in our Sunday school lesson, we read about the importance of love in the family of God. Jesus said, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. It was new in the sense that they had never experienced this kind of love. The Old Testament commanded love. And Jesus says, I am bringing a new kind of commandment to you. That you love one another just as I have loved you. That's what's new about this commandment. And then he says, this will impress the lost world. It's not how much knowledge you have. It's not how much theology you can quote, how many Bible verses you've memorized. He says what will impact the world is your graciousness and the way you interact with people. And so Paul here, the heart of an apologist, we see him saying, King Agrippa, I am happy to make my answer. The Greek word there for answer is apologia. And so our sermon this morning is how to be an effective apologist. An apologist is one who defends his Christian faith. Not just defends it, but with the intent and the goal of persuading people to place their faith in Jesus Christ. We can have a role in that. We can be an effective minister in bringing people to faith. And so the apologist, the evangelist, our witness, the way we live our life is significant. So that's our first point, and we'll continue to read verse 3. He says, especially because you are an expert in all the customs and questions. Have I already read this? I'm delirious this morning. Did I have you all sit down? I don't know what I'm doing. I think I ate the wrong breakfast this morning. I had a smoothie, and that's all I had. So I'm full of vegetable juice and spinach. And so I'm... I'm operating on sugar this morning. I don't know what I'm doing. Let's just keep going, though, okay? <laughs> Next, Paul begins to talk about his manner of life. And so my, the second point on your outline, if you have a bulletin, is that, um, that the explanation for Paul's conversion... What is the best explanation of this guy leaving Judaism? Why, why, why would a man who is climbing up and advancing in Judaism among many of his contemporaries, Galatians 1.14, because he is much more exceedingly zealous for the tradition of his fathers, why? Why would a man walk away from that? What is the best explanation for that? So he says, my manner of life and my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. If they knew, those who knew me at first, prognosco, we talked about that word and we used this passage before in explaining Romans 8, 29. Those who knew me at the first, those who previously knew me and had a relationship with me, if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by our fathers, to this promise our twelve tribes earnestly serve God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I'm accused of the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? If God took nothing and He spoke a universe into existence... If God established our solar system, if God put all these anthrop 
anthropic principles into place and the laws of probability are zero for them happening, that our earth is the exact distance it needs to be from the sun. We have the exact amount of oxygen that we need and the other gases for us to expire breath and for the trees to take in our carbon dioxide and to expel oxygen. We have symbiotic relationships all over in nature. God did that from nothing. Why is it incredible that God can take a body that's been in the grave for three days and resurrect it, King Agrippa? I indeed myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. My third point in the outline is that Paul himself had to be convinced. What would convince this agitator now to become the chief proponent of Christianity? He had to be convinced. But Paul was not convinced against his will. And I'll get into that later. Indeed, I thought myself I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, This I did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priest. And then when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Literally, he threw the pebble in, and that was the idea of casting votes. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. Now, some of you might have a New American Standard or an ESV. The word compelled... And I'll consult with my, my, my Greek critic, Barb. She's checking me out. So the imperfect tense is what's used here, Barb. It's not a past tense. It's a completed action. And with the imperfect, there's an idea that it may or might not be accomplished. So in the New American Standard, it translates it slightly different. It says, I tried to compel them to blaspheme. We know from the earliest records of the persecution of the early church that their torture was extreme. A man named Pliny the Younger was a governor of Bithynia, I believe. I could be wrong. Don't quote me on that one. But he wrote letters back to the emperor Trajan. And he could not get these true Christians to deny their faith. And he said, if they are that persistent, and he said arrogant and obstinate, they need to be put to death. And so Paul is not saying, I actually succeeded in compelling them to blaspheme. In fact, that the same tense is used in the book of Galatians where it says, he who formally destroyed the church, it's the imperfect, it didn't actually happen. And the New King James translates it there, I tried to destroy the church. In fact, he didn't do it. In fact, the harder Paul tried to compel people to blaspheme, the more he ingrained that conviction in their hearts that Jesus Christ has risen He is my Savior. He is my Lord. And this is what Paul's life was bent on. He had to be compelled himself to believe. I persecuted the church even to foreign cities. Now, I sort of skipped over chapter 25. And I don't want to just move past it without mentioning it. Because our last teaching ended at the end of chapter 24. But chapter 25 is sort of just a a synopsis of what happened for those two years, but there's great application, so I don't want to just just bypass it. But Paul arrived at the providential judgment seat of Festus as a result of Felix's inept and wicked rule of Judea. He was a a bumbler, but he was also a cruel and ruthless man. And Luke the historian, he confirms this in the account in chapter 25. He says that he wanted Paul to come in and hear him often, not because he really cared anything about the message, 
But Felix, as a corrupt governor, was hoping that a bribe would be paid to him. And we find that in chapter 25. We also know that he had antagonized the Jews because of his brutal interaction with them. And because of his brutality, he said, I am not going to release Paul because I'm going to try to conciliate them for all the bad things that I've done. And so it says at the end of chapter 24 that he left Paul in prison for two years, even though there was no charge that he could bring against him. In fact, when he has Festus come, he says, it's ridiculous that I send this guy off to Caesar and I don't even have anything to write. This guy's been arrested. He's been left with me. And because Felix wanted to conciliate the Jews, he says, I'm just going to leave this guy in prison rather than trying to disrupt the Jews. Now, we know from Josephus' accounts that he was finally executed by Nero. Felix was. And the only thing that spared his life was Nero's brother, who happened to like old Felix. But maybe that's why you name cats Felix, huh? I don't know. Um, Here we go. Okay, forget that. So that's where we're at in chapter 25. Now, what can you and I learn from chapter 25? What is some application? One, for me, as I meditated on chapter 25 and read it this week, one thing that really struck me, and John and I were talking about this on Wednesday night, that one thing that Paul never exhibited was a victim mentality. For two long years... He could have had a bitter spirit. He could have been grumbling. He could have been complaining. He could have been whinging like you and I often do when things don't go our way. And for two years, he's waiting for trial. For two years, he's trying to settle this. He's violated no law. He's only done what God wanted him to do, and he finds himself sacked in prison. And I thought of two great current examples, two biographies that you ought to read. One is on Richard Wormbrand imprisoned and brutally tortured for 12 years in a Romanian prison, beaten so badly that he no longer could walk when they would beat his feet with clubs, drive spikes into him. And he would walk back to his cell when he could walk or be drugged back to his cell with bleeding feet. And the next mornings, the guards would come in And he would be on his knees pleading with God, not for his release, but for the salvation of his captors. God forbid that any of us should take on the posture of a victim. He counted it a privilege to suffer for Christ. Another biography that you ought to read is Eric Little. Some of you are probably familiar with Chariots of Fire, and I've probably watched that movie and memorized half of it as a runner. But the movie doesn't tell the rest of the story. The gold medalist in the 100-meter dash was a Jewish man, and Eric Little had beaten him often. And the 100 meters was going to be run on Sunday morning. And as a good Protestant man, he was not going to race on the Lord's Day. And so he chose to run in the 400 meters, a race that he'd never trained for. An American athlete who was also a Christian handed him a little piece of paper right before the start of that race. And he unfolded it, and there was a verse from 1 Samuel. It says, God honors those who honor him. And with a clenched fist, he ran that 400 meters and broke the Olympic record. But he went on to China to give his life as a missionary. And when the Japanese Imperial Army invaded China, the rest of the missionaries fled. But Eric Little said, God forbid that I should forsake these people that God has called me to serve. And he was taken and put into a prison camp where he suffered starvation. And when the meager rations were given, he took his rice and would take it to the Chinese Christians who were suffering worse than he was. And one day, a Japanese guard said, Why does this group keep on praying? What is a Christian? What is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? 
And the only thing that the Chinese believers could say is, they are, Jesus is like Eric. He never complained about his situation. He died in that prison camp, never came back to Great Britain. So from this passage, we see Paul always having a cheerful spirit, taking every opportunity to praise Christ and to witness for the goodness of the Lord. Another thing that we can get from this passage is that Paul appealed to his Roman citizenship. Now, how does that work out in the Christian life? Aren't we supposed to turn the other cheek? Yes, we are. That's the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is our interpersonal relationships with one another. We have a different responsibility under the civil government. And Paul, I think for you and I today, living in America, we can take from this that we should pursue every legitimate means to propagate the truth of Jesus Christ and to portray who He is in our lives. Paul knew that the truth and the integrity of the gospel, the truth and the integrity of his life was on the line, and if his reputation was marred, he knew the gospel would be marred also. I don't know who said this. I think it was my mother-in-law. Evil men prevail when good men do nothing. Somebody else, I'm sure, said that, but I've heard that many times from Rebecca. So this brings us to chapter 26, where Paul gives his defense before King Agrippa. King Agrippa was the great-grandson of Herod the Great. He had a lot of dealings with the Jews. He had a history, a family history of dealing with the Jewish people. It was Herod the Great who knew a new king was born and issued a decree to kill all the children of Judea. It was Herod Agrippa's father who had put James, the brother of John, to death with the sword. It was the King Agrippa's father who had Peter arrested. So he knew a lot about Judaism. It was his great uncle that tried Jesus Christ and condemned him to death. And it was that Herod that Jesus called a fox. So when Paul makes his appeal here, he could have said, I know your genealogy. You're a rascal. You're a skunk. You're a great-great-granddad. He was no good. And, and he didn't have any right to the throne. He went about killing innocent children. No, Paul doesn't do that. I want us to turn to a related passage to see how important the apologist's life is and how our meekness and our gentleness, how God can use it to open up people's hearts and minds to the gospel. This is the way Paul addresses King Agrippa. And at the end of this passage, and we'll see it next week, King Agrippa says, Paul, you have almost persuaded me to become a Christian. I really think it, a lot of it has to do with his introduction and the way he addresses King Agrippa. This was a passage that I put to memory early in my ministry, and I often didn't practice it, but I memorized it to help me do it. And it's 2 Timothy 2, 23 through the end of the chapter, but it says, Foolish and ignorant questions reject, because all they do is generate. Gneo, they bring birth to strife. And the servant of the Lord, doulos, the slave of Jesus, doesn't need to get embroiled in quarrels. But in meekness, he needs to be able to teach, to be able to articulate what he believes with humility instructing those who are opposing themselves. And here's the purpose clause lest peradventure, Old King James English, perhaps God might grant them repentance. To do what? To acknowledge the truth and to recover themselves out of the snare of the devil that he has laid for them to do his will. What Paul is telling Timothy there, that as a servant of the Lord, you can impact people. 
who don't understand truth, you can impact people who are under the sway of demonic influences. And you can have a powerful testimony to set them free. Now, there's some bad teaching going around today that says all we have to do is give them the truth and let God do all the work. Now, that's partially true. No one is saved apart from the work and the power and the persuasion of the Holy Spirit. I believe that. But I also believe a biblical balance. People are not irresistibly persuaded against their will. Even Paul wasn't here. He said, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Yes, God used a powerful means to get a hold of Paul's attention. He used a blinding light. He used a great fish to get a hold of Jonah. But it wasn't against Jonah's will. He used a burning bush to get a hold of Moses. These men were elected servants in order to propagate the gospel worldwide. Moses, you are my elected servant to go down and confront Pharaoh so the entire world will know that the Hebrew God is God of gods and Lord of lords. Jonah, I am electing you. I am calling you, and I will have you swallowed by a great fish if you don't go, Jonah. And I will get your attention, Jonah, because I want to send you to Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, that governs the entire world. You are my elect servant because I am using Israel as my nation. I am using called-out servants because I want the entire world to know about Jesus Christ. And Paul says, I am a chosen servant to be sent to the Gentiles. So Paul here is starting out with Timothy, telling him how he can be an effective evangelist by his life. So if you're in 2 Timothy, I'm not, so I'm going to flip over there really quick. And I'm gonna, I want you to give you, if you're a note taker, you can write these things down, and there's nothing inspired by what I've got to say, but it's going to come from God's inspired word. So if I'm incorrect, you please correct me, or if you can say amen, say amen. But in 2 Timothy chapter 2, it says to avoid foolish and ignorant disputes or strivings, knowing that they generate strife. The servant of the Lord must not be quarrelsome, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who oppose themselves. It's the middle voice in the Greek, and I like the old King James because it actually brings out that middle voice, those who oppose themselves. And then we've got a conditional sentence here, if God perhaps will grant them repentance. We're going to look today what it means to grant repentance. It doesn't mean that God sovereignly irresistible gives some people repentance and he withholds it from others. That is not what it means. And I'm going to show you biblically why that is so. To grant somebody something is to give them the opportunity to respond. And I will give you some biblical passages to support that. The context supports that. If it was God granting irresistibly against their own will, making them want to repent and regenerating them against their own will and then giving them faith so as to believe, Paul would have never said, be gentle, be articulate, be humble, be kind to that person. He would have just said, they're already going to repent. You just give it to them. That's not what he says. The context doesn't support that. Okay, let's keep on reading. What is he going to do? What, by doing that, repentance, they may come to their senses because they have been taken captive by the devil. You see, Satan is a real spiritual entity. If they were born blind and if they were born dead and could not relate to God in any shape or form, the devil doesn't need to lay snares for those kind of people. It's illogical. It's the God of this age, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, who blinds the eyes of the unbeliever. And what does God use to open the eyes of the unbeliever? 
Yes, he uses our persuasion. Yes, he uses our argumentation. He uses our defense. But don't misunderstand me. It is not our ability to articulate the gospel. It is the power of the Holy Spirit. There is a balance here. Yes, I as an evangelist, you as a witness, you must sanctify Christ in your heart. You must do it with gentleness. You must do it with meekness. You must do it with long-suffering. But we never trust in that. Paul was in Corinth and he says, I was there with you in fear and trembling and my speech was contemptible. So that your power, that your salvation doesn't rest in the wisdom of man and my ability to articulate it, but your salvation lies in the power and the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. John 6, no man can come to the Father unless he is drawn. But how does God draw? He draws by the convincing work of the Holy Spirit and by the power of the gospel and the human conscience that knows they have violated their own standards of right and wrong. God uses the law to convict people of sin and righteousness and judgment. God uses creation so that all people are without excuse. You can't put the onus on God. God forbid that they would put the onus on us. Well, that guy who witnessed to me was a real jerk. No, we've got to be these kind of people. Seven points here. One, in defending our faith, our conduct does matter. We are not to get embroiled over pointless arguments that further divide. That's the first thing. You know how you, when you're talking to somebody about your faith, oh, they try to lure you in to a pointless argument, don't they? Well, what about the person in Africa that's never, never heard the gospel? What about you who's hearing the gospel right now? <laughs> Let God take care of that, okay? So don't get lured into pointless quarrels, point number one. Number two, we must be able to teach. God expects us as his children to know him well enough to tell somebody else how we met the Savior. If you know John 3, 16, you are able to teach someone how to come to faith in Christ. That God so loved you that he gave his son in your place and died instead of you. Talk to a little guy this morning who's got a cross. I says, why do you got that cross? And he says, because Jesus died on it to forgive me of my sin. That little child knows how to be an evangelist. He is able to teach. So we need to be able to articulate, give thoughtful reason and logic behind what we believe. Number three, we are to be patient and gentle and meek when we instruct. Number four, people are actually opposing themselves. Not because God decreed for them to hate him. God grants repentance. In this context, it means God provides them the opportunity to repent. When you are gracious and when you are kind and when you are meek and you don't chase rabbit trails and get in arguments, God will use that to soften their hearts. Perhaps he may grant them that repentance, give them that opportunity to say, you know what? This is the first time I've sat down and logically had it heard, and I understand it now. Let me think about the truth. Now, I want to show you two verses where the same word grant doesn't mean to effectually give something to somebody, but it actually means to provide them the opportunity to respond. Okay? So follow with me over to the book of Acts again. In Acts chapter 5... <clears throat> And verse 31, we see the same word used to grant repentance. The same phraseology. And it doesn't mean to effectually, irresistibly call everyone. It means to provide the opportunity for someone to respond to the message of the gospel. Talking about Jesus here. He says, Him God has exalted at the right hand.
to be a prince and a savior, the same word, and to do what? To grant repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. Peter is not saying that God's going to effectually, irresistibly call every single Israelite. He said, we are concluding that now God has given the opportunity for the Israelite people to come to faith in Jesus. That's what he's saying. And the same phrase is used in 2 Timothy. Go to another passage, because it's not that God's just giving Jewish people this privilege and this opportunity to repent. God is giving everyone this privilege and this responsibility to repent. So when Peter went to the Gentiles' house, they were a little bit angry with him. What are you doing, Peter, going to Gentiles? And he says, you know what? God hasn't just granted and given the opportunity and the privilege for Jewish people to believe and repent. He's given this to the Gentiles also. And so let's look at that passage. Acts eleven, eighteen. So they heard Peter's story about the, the, the sheet of food, food coming down. It's unkosher. Don't eat that. What are you doing? God told me to go. God told me to witness to Gentiles. And when they heard these things, Acts eleven eighteen. when they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. It's not just for the Jews. It's for everybody. And here's my point. In 2 Timothy 2, 22 through 26, or 25, God perhaps will grant them repentance as we graciously, patiently, accurately, lovingly explain Jesus Christ to people. And they will... Come to their senses. Return to sobriety, literally is what that word means. And recover themselves from the snare that Satan has led for them. And how does God set people free? How do people come to this? It's by you and I sharing truth in a gracious and loving way. And that's exactly the way Paul starts out with King Agrippa. Now I've got two more points and I know we're quickly running out of time. So I want to try to be brief if I can. But what is the best explanation for Paul's conversion? So let's go back over to Acts chapter 26 and we'll look at verses 4 through 8. So I'm going to ask a couple of rhetorical questions that we can be thinking about as you're turning. Did Paul have something to gain by becoming a Christian? And of course, the rhetorical answer is no, he didn't. Did Paul need to fulfill something that his Jewish religion and practice was not accomplishing for him? Was there something better that Paul was saying, you know, I'm just missing out. I, I've got to find a better life. Or was Paul suffering from a guilt complex? Or possibly did Paul have some kind of hallucination because he had become psychologically fixated on destroying Christians? Are, are, all, are any of the, Now, you might be laughing to yourself this morning, but those are the arguments that the antagonists give in debating Christianity. What is the best explanation for this guy who leaves a life of being a Pharisee? He is not only a Pharisee, he's the son of a Pharisee. He studied under the elite of elite. It'd been like going to an Ivy League school in Jerusalem. He studied under Gamaliel, the foremost Pharisee and school of Hillel of his day. Probably graduated with a Ph.D. as smart as Paul was. And he had deep religious convictions. He was confident that what he was doing was the right thing. In fact, he wrote a letter to that effect. 
He says, if anybody else had confidence in the flesh, I more. I was circumcised the eighth day. I was a stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the law, righteousness, and blameless. To convert brought him no personal gain, but instead it brought him great personal loss. Another passage of Scripture, and I'm not going to read all of it, but Paul said that he was beaten with rods, he was stoned, he was beaten five times by the Jews with 39 stripes, fastings often, perils of the city, perils of the wilderness, and you can read that passage for yourself. But Paul lost so much personal comfort personal income, personal power and prestige in order to convert to Christianity, besides all the daily care of the churches. If Paul was lying, if the apostles were lying about who Jesus was, they knew they were lying because they made up the story. Do you follow that? If they were lying about the resurrection, they knew it was a lie because they would have had to make up the story. People will die for a lie that they believe to be true. Sadly, we've seen this in America on 9-11. People were willing to die because they believed that lie was true. But people do not die for a lie that they made up if they can avoid it. And that's what Paul and their other apostles would have had to do. The resurrection of Jesus is, is consistent with all of God's revelation. It's consistent completely with the character of God. Verses 6 through 8. I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by my fa- to our fathers. To this promise are twelve tribes earnestly serving God night and day hope to attain. He's saying this belief in the resurrection is completely consistent with everything that God has revealed from our very first forefather, Abraham. This is God's consistent revelation. Abraham was given a promise that through his seed, singular, he would bless all people. Abraham was unable to have a child. Abraham believed in a resurrection. How do we know that? The book of Hebrews tells us that. He looked at the stars and he said, My wife's womb is dead and you have given life to the dead. And so God, if you can do this, I will take my only son Isaac and I will lay him down on the altar because I believe in the power of a resurrection. Everything Paul believed in was consistent with what his forefathers, those 12 tribes, were earnestly serving God day and night for almost 2,000 years. Jesus said this, Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced. How did Abraham see that day? The book of Hebrews tells us how he saw it. He saw it through his spiritual sight. He saw it afar off and he embraced those promises as a stranger and as a pilgrim because he believed that God was going to raise the dead. And Paul says, everything I believe in is consistent with the promises of God and the revelation of God. There's no other explanation for Paul's conversion other than he met a living, resurrected Christ. He had nothing to gain and he had everything to lose. He was fully content and fully persuaded that he was doing the right thing. What he believed was consistent with the character of God. He is the God who says, Nothing is too difficult for me. Jeremiah chapter 32. Ah, Lord God, Thou hast made the heavens and the earth by Thy great power. Nothing is too difficult for Thee. If God has made you and I in the image of God, if God has created us with a conscience, and God has created all people everywhere with a belief in life after death, all cultures believe that. All religions teach that. But it's only Jesus Christ who came back from the dead to authenticate it. Why would it be incredible 
that such a God as ours would raise the dead, Agrippa. I don't probably have time to explore the last point, but Paul himself had to be convinced. I'll leave you with this thought. It wasn't a hallucination. Paul indeed saw that vision, but he wasn't convinced against his own personal will. Verse 19 says, Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. You see, Paul could have, he had a choice in the matter. Moses had a choice in the matter. In fact, Moses tried to get out of it. Jonah tried to get out of it. But Paul says, I wasn't disobedient. I had to be miraculously convinced by the persuasion of God on the Damascus Road. There was a, a young student who was asked to debate the campus atheist. He was a professor. He was a brilliant professor. And he prided himself in dissuading college students to stop believing in Jesus Christ. Today we are living in an age where atheists aren't content just to be atheists. They are evangelical atheists. In other words, they want to convert other people to atheism. And they are writing books to convert people to atheism. And there's some famous ones. Sam Harris, uh, Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins. And two of those guys have debated, I think, one of the greatest apologists of our generation, a guy named William Lane Craig. And both of them he had tied up in knots. Because he just simply used logic and reason and the Scripture. And it was irrefutable. This young student who knew little on the discipline of apologetics knew the facts about the resurrection. And he went to debate this professor. And the professor was sort of stumped after this student gave his explanation for all of his beliefs in the resurrection. And then he came to the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul. And the professor then said, Ah, that's nothing other than a psychological explanation. People who are fixated on trying to destroy something often will convert to that themselves. And he thought, Ah, I've won the debate. And that little student smiled. He says, Professor, you better be careful. You hate Christians so much, you're liable to become one. <laughs> So we as Christians apologists, we have a responsibility to have the right heart when we persuade people. We are not out to win an argument. We are out to see God win a soul that's captive by Satan and to help people to come to their senses and to acknowledge the truth. Paul is a great defense for the Christian faith. Gary Habermas, a wonderful professor that used to work at Liberty University, said that Paul is one of the hardest things and problematic myriads of theories to explain away because it wasn't a hallucination, it wasn't a fixation, it wasn't guilt, it wasn't that he was trying to win anything. He was thoroughly convinced that he met a living Savior who dramatically changed his life. So Paul is a great apologetic, and he himself had to be converted, and we'll finish his testimony next Sunday. But my appeal to you this morning is don't ever feel embarrassed or feel that you have to back down sharing your faith in Christ Share it lovingly. Share it compassionately. Understand the arguments for Christ, but most of all, rely on the gospel alone to change people's hearts. The rest of this chapter, we're going to see what Paul was called to do. And it was the power of the gospel that opens eyes, that takes people out of darkness, that brings them into light, that takes them out of the power of Satan and translates them into the kingdom of His dear Son. 
And that's what nearly convinced Agrippa in such a short time to become a Christian. If you're not a believer this morning, maybe you believe in all the things about Jesus. But today you may say, you know what, I've heard about Christ all my life. There's never been a time where I didn't really believe the things about Him. But today maybe you're realizing, I need to ask Him and to confess Him with my mouth and to believe in my heart that God has raised Him from the dead. That's as simple as saying a prayer. And God hears the penitent prayer. And He comes and He regenerates miraculously and instantaneously. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, thank You so much, God, for leaving this historical account that was inspired by the Holy Spirit to be written by Luke for us to study it and to follow His example. Lord, I pray that our speech would be gracious. I pray, God, that it would be seasoned with salt. I pray, sovereign God, that You would open doors of utterances. Open doors for Your Word that we might speak it boldly as we ought to speak. Father, I'm asking You to forgive each one of us This week, we may have had an opportunity. Maybe someone was walking down the street. Maybe someone in the supermarket. Maybe a next-door neighbor. Maybe a co-worker. And we failed to take the opportunity that You gave us. God, we want to repent of that right now. We ask, God, that You would forgive us. And God, we ask that You would grant us opportunities this week to talk to someone about the Savior. God, I pray that Your Word would run swiftly and be glorified. God, that we would be unashamed. That God, we would release the words of life to people. Let us be proud to name the name of Jesus. We ask this in His Son's name. Amen.